Hi, this is Amartya. And this is Sumail. And you're listening to the Jungli Podcast. Our guest today is a frog biologist and her name is Madhushri Mudke. I first found out about her work during my master's at the Zoological Society of London, where I learned about the EDGE of Existence program. EDGE stands for Evolutionarily Distinct and Globally Endangered. And the initiative essentially highlights and allocates research and conservation efforts to species with unique evolutionary history that are rare and threatened. She's a fellow of the program and is currently working on a species which I thought was very interesting called the dancing frog. Madhushri is currently studying for a PhD in conservation science and stability studies after changing careers from physiotherapy. Madhushri is very active in communicating her conservation work on social media and currently manages both her nature appreciation blog at Girl Gone Birds as well as Frog Survey Club, Frogs of Manipal. Currently, her project aims to understand the ecological niche requirements and threats to the Kottigehar dancing frog. Exciting. Let's ring her in. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Hello. Yeah, hi. So nice to meet you. Same here. Uh, it's great to meet you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us on what's going to be the second episode of our podcast. Thank you. So we want to start off with your career path that you said. You said you changed from studying physiotherapy to pursuing your current career. When did the frogs research or your interest in this specific area? come into the picture okay so the thing is i think in india what happens is that somebody has already decided for you what career you are going to choose and it's mostly your immediate family or your close groups you know your extended family some uncle in the family <laughs> the same thing happened in my case it was decided that my brother was going to study in an engineering college and i was going to study in a medical college and because my grades were really bad at the time i couldn't get an mbbs seat neither did i get a bds seat which is dental <laughs> so the only option i was left with was physiotherapy and that too was almost like a paid seat it wasn't a seat that i got from giving the exams so it was already decided and then when i was in the college i realized that it's difficult to now you know move on without finishing the degree so somehow i ended up finishing the degree and then i got the strength to stand up on my feet and tell my parents that this is not happening i cannot pursue physiotherapy i don't like it and then later on i was trying to figure out how to study environment and at the time i think it was 2010 and 2011 at the time people were aware of things like climate change but it was certainly not as much as we are aware of now now you even find celebrities talking about climate change and biodiversity loss but at the time that was not the case and i was really not aware of any colleges where i could study so that's exactly what happened and then later on i looked at figuring out what i can do and that took almost 2 years the passion for amphibians and frogs was that something that was always there did you always have that interest or did you develop it after you decided that you would start studying environment and biodiversity so frankly what i think happened was it was the only opportunity in front of me in 2014 when i was really looking to pick a career so i think it's the other way around the frogs got interested in me and not like me getting interested in them <laughs> but on a serious note 
when I was working on an environment impact assessment project, biodiversity as a whole was a part of that project. And we were looking at birds, we were looking at herbtiles, we were looking at almost every uh, kind of biodiversity that is there in the Western Ghats. And frogs were a part of that study. Then later on, I got to know through the other scientists who were working on that EIA project that frogs are actually sitting at the peak of the extinction crisis today. And a lot of uh, scientists wow. and conservationists are actually just talking about the charismatic species or the flagship species that we often hear in mainstream media. Flagship species is a species that is used as an ambassador, symbol or icon for a defined habitat, environmental cause or campaign. They are also known as charismatic species. So I thought that when I want to work in a field like academia or you know, work as a researcher, then it's my job to actually delve into something where there is very little information. So that's why I think I picked up frogs and then when I learned that we need to get more information of why they're sitting on the extinction crisis and what's exactly happening to them. That was what got me really interested in frogs. Yeah, frogs are at the forefront of the extinction crisis we're facing today. And I noticed that us being in cities, we barely see any frogs. What, what do you think the biggest anthropogenic threat is that amphibians face in, in our country, in India? So I think globally, not just in India, everywhere frogs are facing threat. And in India particularly so, because most of the tropical belt, we are facing issues with the amount of land use and land changes. So it's not just that natural forests are getting converted into, say, agricultural lands or that the protected areas are shrinking and things like that. But it's also our simplistic measures like manoeuvring gardens or developing any piece of land into a farmland or an agricultural land. I think that is one of the biggest threats to frogs. And apart from that, there's also disease and climate change but since we live in tropical climate somehow India is not seeing as many wipeouts because of climate change or disease for that matter but we're definitely seeing a change in the population of frog when it comes to land use and land cover changes and I think this is something that I'm also documenting through my PhD and through the EDGE project right now. Yeah, in India, I think particularly it's just the amount of infrastructure growth that we are seeing and the, the amount of concretization that we are seeing all across. When you talk about uh, evaluating, say, a species or a group of animals, how do you classify when a species or a group is considered critically endangered as opposed to, say, a vulnerable population or something that is not of big concern? So there are multiple ways. One that IUCN also uses is looking at various aspects of where that species is thriving, the habitat, okay. the ecology of the species, the amount of area that the species occupies. A species that is large ranging will have areas where there are different populations. Any species which occupies larger space will be less threatened compared to a species that occupies a smaller space. So that's one of the major things uh, when we decide whether a species falls into a vulnerable category or whether it falls into a critically endangered category. When I got my EDGE fellowship, at the time, the dancing frog was known only from two localities. But now, since doing the project for almost a year and a half, we figured that the dancing frog is actually found in a lot newer areas as well. But still within the Western Ghats, we have different populations of the dancing frog. That might be one of the ways in which the dancing frog might not be critically endangered tomorrow. It might get downlisted. There are things like this that affect a particular species. Also the size of the species, the ecology. So this group of frogs called Indiranas, they're old world frogs and they breathe through this uh, 
um, this amplexus position, which is called an inguinal amplexus. So that position has certain disadvantages towards the frog. The term old world is used to refer to Africa, Asia and Europe. And amplexus is the mating position of frogs and toads in which the male clasps on top of the female. So there's many, many frog sex positions and inguinal amplexus, which Mother Shri mentioned, is when a male frog clasps a female around her waist or inguinal region. Be sure to check the show notes after this for information on the various other positions. So we know when we look at the ecology of any particular animal, what are the disadvantages and what are the advantages and how many offsprings that frog could produce, how many live offsprings. So there are different things that act on it. And the third aspect is also the amount of threats. Say, for example, any species is facing direct threat, consumption, for example. You know that this particular species is getting consumed. That's the direct threat. In that case, you can calculate the amount of population that is left versus the population that has already been eaten or wiped out. Those are direct threats. Depending on how much of the population is left, we could categorize them as vulnerable or critically endangered or whatever extinct in the wild. Wow, so there was a lot of interesting information in that, but one that our listeners will really, really appreciate, and that's the adorable dancing frog. So could you describe this species? Tell us a little bit about why they're called dancing frogs. They're called dancing frog because they have this foot-flagging behavior. They are signaling another individual in the same species. They sort of lift their hind limbs one after the other. It seems like a dance, so that's why I think when the scientists discovered them in 2014, they were probably in a very romantic mood, so they're like, oh, this is a dancing (laughs) frog, so so let's call it that. And that also helps in gaining popularity towards the species. There are frogs that show audio signaling, and then there are frogs that show visual signaling. So the dancing frog particularly lives in a very noisy environment. It is a species that lives in flowing streams. Flowing streams make a lot of noise, so it's impossible for the frog to just communicate through audio signaling. And we as scientists think that that could be one of the reasons why they might have developed visual signaling, so that they could establish their territories, attract females, and go around doing basic needs of survival. So the signaling here with the foot flagging is to both males and females? Uh, We don't know particularly, but it's probably for territory establishment. There might be more coming in and (laughs) we should be on a lookout of what's happening next. (laughs) I see. Do do both sexes show the behavior? No, it's just the male. As far as we know, as of today, we've seen only males foot flagging. We haven't seen any females too. I want to go into a rather basic difference. Well, how is a frog different from a toad? And how does one go about identifying the two? (laughs) So, according to popular opinion, toads are uglier than frogs. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's so mean. I would agree. (laughs) Yeah, but in scientific language, toads and frogs are the same. They fall under the category of anurans, which are basically tailless amphibians. But toads are the creatures which have rots on their skin. They also have poison glands. And frogs on the other side are more delicate looking. They have beautiful long, uh, you know, forelimbs and hind limbs. And then they're also colorful, but they could still be poisonous. But just because they're more colorful and they're more beautiful looking, it just makes them look more appealing than probably toads. More slippery too. Yeah, frogs are definitely more slimy, but toads also do secrete poisons and some form of slime. 
You'd mentioned disease, and that got me thinking about the whole fungal chytrid problem that amphibians are facing throughout the world. Also, other diseases like ranavirus. Uh, are those present in India? There are about two or three papers that have been published on the presence of chytrid strains in India. The strain in India is not potent enough to wipe out major populations of frogs. So the strain has been probably evolving along with the frogs. The frogs have sort of learned to live with them. But we do know that some families of frogs are more vulnerable to the chytrid strain, if at all it comes in the future. And Micrizalidae family, the dancing frog family, is one of the families that is mentioned to be vulnerable to the chytrid strain. There are no reports that chytrid fungus is causing trouble in India for the populations, but we do know that there is some presence of chytrids here in India. The stream-dwelling frogs are more vulnerable to them, and any aquatic species would be more vulnerable. So is that part of your PhD while doing a conservation assessment, also looking at disease and possible implications? I'm looking at something called as malformations. That is an umbrella term where we look at uh, frogs that are malformed or diseased. But we're not studying the chytrid strain because chytrid is a fungus that you have to take swabs of skin and then process it in the lab. So we're just doing the first step of identifying if we are finding any malformed frogs. When it comes to frogs in urban areas, in my experience, I really notice the frogs in the monsoons. When I hear them and when I see them hopping about, where are they in the rest of the year? Or is this something you only see in cities? No, you see it everywhere actually. But in more stable climates, in climates like evergreen moist forests, there you might not see such an activity. But definitely frogs do have a season. They are most active in monsoons. They are monsoon breeders. And that is the reason why you would always find them coming out in wet seasons. In most dry seasons, frogs will hibernate. They'll go into hiding. And usually in cities, these areas would be under the leaf litter or soil burrows or even the cracks that develop when a stream dries out or at the base of any pond. Those are the areas where you might find amphibians hibernating. But in my building, in the building complex where I live, there are leaf piles that are kept at the base of each tree and I see toads hibernating under it. And if there is a shower, unexpected shower, they will come out of hiding because they'll be like, oh, it's monsoons. <laughs> So most of the frogs will go into some form of hiding or hibernation in the dry season. I just want to bring to attention, you published a book called The Frogs of Manipal. It's used as a handbook for identifying frogs. When will we see one for frogs of Maharashtra? Yeah, I actually have plans, but right now I just need to finish my PhD before I take up any projects. <laughs> That is the reason why like, I really stopped writing this other book as well. Basically, the PhD is taking so much of my time. <laughs> so that is the reason. But I think in the future, maybe two or three years after yes. I plan to write. We'll definitely yeah. be in line to buy it. Every time I'm out and I look at a frog, I always think of how useful it would be to have a very specific yeah. regional field guide to find out what it is. Otherwise, it can be a little tricky. So even beyond an academic book, your field guide... You're also an author of fiction. Yeah. <laughs> You've written a short story in this compilation anthology. So could you tell us about your life as a writer? <laughs> yeah, I think I first 
the reason why I got into my PhD was simply because I like to read and write. I didn't think about it as something where we are going to look at data and analyze it. So as a writer, I don't generally call myself that, but it's a place where you can express yourself. And it's also a place where you can put in your thought. It doesn't matter if these thoughts are very abstract or if these thoughts are something that people don't find relatable. It's just a place where you put your brain out. <laughs> it's also an activity done by your hand. I'm a very old school person, so I still have my diary and pen. Before I write anything in my computer, I would write in my diary first. So I think hand is like the extension of your brain. And this is the number one activity that you could do when you want to express. I am privileged enough to have my hands. And that is the reason why I think I took up fiction as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's always easier even for me to put my thoughts down on paper before I pick up the computer. Yeah, about your writing, one of my favorite parts of reading up on your research was your blog called Girls Gone Birds. Yeah. Specifically, the blog post, What No One Tells You About Careers in Wildlife, you yeah. emphasize thinking outside the box for a fulfilling career in this field. So yeah. what are your favorite examples of this ideology? So I wrote this out of frustration, really, because every time I see people coming to me for advice, they always ask me, oh, we want a career, we want to roam in the forest and we want to collect this data and handle animals and do this and that. And that's not the only way you could possibly be roaming in the forest. So it's really important that people come up with what exactly they want to do and not have these utopian ideas of, you know, the forest is a fancy place where one goes and finds some form of solace or something. It's not like that. Even as researchers, what you see on my Instagram or what you see on videos or what you hear, it's not really such a wonderful and such a happy place. A life like that of a PhD student is generally very difficult and people don't see it. I think that was one of the reasons I said that it's important that not everybody thinks of it as handling animals. You could possibly be working in a zoo if all you want to do is handle animals. I think that was one of the reasons. Also, when I started out, I didn't at the time think that there were so many options being in wildlife. It's, it's possible you could just finish your master's degree and join as a program lead. You could do so many things by yourself and by thinking out of the box. You could start your own company. Now you have tech to help you. So that was the reason I think we see people who are in mainstream career paths and then we sort of end up following them. Sort of put a full stop on the idea that it's all magical to be in the forest. It's not really magical. You're really playing on your life. You never know which animal is going to come in front of you. So that's something that we should all be thinking about. It's important to consider that aspect of research as well. So you mentioned technology and how that can help you. And you've been involved in citizen science. Could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on citizen science and research? Right now, I am involved in two projects, one of uh, which is in Manipal, the university town. And that's really because there are a lot of students there and students love to have some form of an extracurricular activity on the side and they have a lot of time. So that was an ideal place to experiment with citizen science because, you know, you have a bulk of people who would have time to do something outside their professional life. So there we started this program called Frogs of Manipal and then also elaborated it to malfrogs where we document all the malformed frogs. And so, so these two projects, it's very simple to tell people what to do. 
and i think one of the main things about citizen science is that while it has a huge role to play in data collection for for scientists i think it is a tool for people to learn about nature and biodiversity and get involved in the nature that is around them so they also do not feel left out and they do not think that this biodiversity crisis or this climate change is a problem that is left to the scientists to solve it's something that each one of us can play a role in citizen science is like that to me where you're giving opportunities to people to actually get involved into something that is so natural to all human beings so citizen science is actually very simple for for things like birds and it's pretty well established but for frogs it becomes slightly difficult because mostly frogs are nocturnal animals you need some form of an expert uh, you can't directly go around handling frogs and if you just see a frog you might not know what it is so it's it's it works in a very different way when it comes to things like frogs but yeah the basic idea still remains the same that we are educating people and trying to get them involved into looking at things apart from birds and apart from any other charismatic mammals that they might have already seen so yeah so we are looking at developing some tools that encourage and that document frogs in their immediate environment is catching frogs with your hands bad for them is there anything you can do to handle them if you want to observe them or is it just best to appreciate them from a distance so i would say for any animal it's always best to not touch them at all to not handle them unless they are of course cats you know but <laughs> cats or dogs but i'm just saying that for any wild animal it's the best thing to leave the animal in its space and to not touch it and it's particularly true for frogs like you mentioned you know the thing with frogs is that they are cold blooded animals and we are warm blooded animals so there is a basic temperature difference between the bodies of frogs and the bodies of human beings so that is one major reason why you shouldn't be touching frogs at all and the other thing is that uh, frogs could also be poisonous so that's one other reason that we often do not encourage any very important to, yeah a lay person to actually touch frogs the thing that we do with our citizen science projects also that we just go near the frog slowly do not disturb it and just take a picture from the top and from the side that helps us to at least identify the frog to a genus level if not the species yeah that's that's pretty much what you can do the other thing is when it comes to handling i personally like to handle frogs only for like educational and research purposes so even when we were doing our pilot surveys with for the dancing frog the dancing frog is so vulnerable and it lives in such pristine habitats that when we did our pilot study we actually did not handle any of the amphibians at all we just looked at them we marked it with gps and okay this is where the frog is found this is where it's not found we just went about doing that the actual study where we were supposed to do some measurements at that time we had to follow a protocol where you put in gloves and then you handle the frog for less than 3 minutes because then the temperature difference starts and the frog will start raising its temperature and it's really not good for the frog because we don't know how long it will live so those were the protocols that we were following when we were handling them wow so you can actually overheat a frog by holding it yeah. for too long yeah and they go into this uh, frozen state 
I'm just talking about the dancing frog because I have handled those most of the time. But then even the other frog, they go into this frozen sort of a shock state and they'll stretch out their arms and legs. Then you know that, okay, something is wrong. Then you just pour some water on them to bring the temperature down. I've seen that happen with the dancing frog and also with Indiranas at times because these are the frogs that live in colder environments. But it might not happen with a toad or with a bullfrog for that matter. It's very species specific how the frog is going to respond to shock. Yeah, usually when I handle frogs is when I find them on the road yeah. and you pick them up and put them in a little bush or on the side of the road. I've, I do on occasion remember a frog completely freezing and me just wondering what's happened to you. What happened, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with your work on malfrogs, yeah. so can you document malformed uh, frogs from around the country? Yeah, so right now we're working with the India Biodiversity Portal and there's a group where this citizen science program was started. I'm not sure if the, the India Biodiversity Portal is basically only for India. So we are documenting biodiversity across the country with the help of citizen scientists. So when we started Malfrogs, we really wanted to look at what's happening at a country level. That's why we launched it on that portal. I did have some reports from outside of the country as well. But right now, my study does not allow me to work on a global project. But like we're just looking at what's happening in our country. Yeah, I remember uh, reading a paper that you published, I think, as part of your PhD yeah. on frogs of the laterite plateau. There was a little bit on malformations there as well. I don't yeah. know too much about amphibian diversity in that region. So could you tell us a little bit about the Laterite Plateau and what your work there was about? Yeah, so the Lateritic Plateau, uh, we published the work from Karnataka. And so the university town is actually based on the Lateritic Plateaus, which are not recognized as regions that are important for biodiversity. But they are very much a part of the Western Ghats as well. But since they were treeless and since they were places where it just rocks, and that led to them being understood as wastelands. And because of the fact that they were considered as wastelands, there was rampant development happening across the plateaus. But what we forgot is that the plateaus host very different biodiversity compared to areas of Western Ghats, which are low elevation forests. So the plateaus have a different number of species and the Western Ghats where it starts, the foothills of Western Ghats and then the low elevation evergreen forests and then the Sholas above them have very different biodiversity. So um, we wanted to document those and this paper which came out was looking at the list of species that were found only on the lateritic formations. And these formations are also really old. They are millions of years old, age-old rock formations. And that is the reason why the species that we find there might also have evolved so many years, so many years back. Now, that paper really just came out as the first chapter of my first objective, the first sub-objective of my PhD. And that's why we published it, saying that there have been 19 species of frog documented only from this one particular habitat, the lateritic plateaus. And then we also documented the malformations because malformations are linked to anthropogenic pressures. If the amount of anthropogenic pressures in any given habitat are more, then the number of malformations that we find among frogs are also more. So we wanted to highlight that. That's why we reported the number of malformations. That's very fascinating. I want to ask about the relationship between the people and frogs in the places you've studied. 
So you've mentioned uh, a few things already that how frogs are used for consumption. So are frogs consumed in the places you've researched in? So the places where I have researched, I haven't found a lot of frogs being consumed, but I have worked in Goa for some time. And the state of Goa, Kerala, and I think some states of Northeast have some history of frogs being consumed. But I think in other parts of India, we really don't know if consumption is such a big thing. The other thing that we don't know is whether this consumption is actually causing a decline in the population of frogs. So, sure, they are being consumed and there are reports on tadpoles being consumed and tadpoles of ed species being consumed. So, we know that that species is really important. Yeah, but then we still need a lot more research on how much consumption is okay, if this consumption is okay or if it's not okay or whether it's like a value problem that we have. So, like, it's it's a very different <laughs> ball game, and this consumption also very historical, right? It's... Uh, it's the older communities that are living in that area are consuming frogs for, for protein requirements or for maybe financial reasons. Yeah, I think the most important part about this whole consumption debate is their quantity. We need to see how much is being consumed and how much is left in the wild. But this is a question that people keep asking and I think there's very little information. I think there's information from Kerala for sure because there are edge fellows working in Kerala and the purple frog is, is an edge species so I think that would be the best person to answer. Hopefully we can have them as a guest on yeah. soon. And another thing which I wanted to ask about is in STEM you have social and financial barriers to getting into the field and I'm sure these would have been exemplified being a woman in STEM and how do you deal with these problems and what resources would you recommend? Are there any role models that you look up to, books or online resources that have helped you in your journey? So I think as PSE students we are often always broke, exhausted and existential. That is the main thing about academia but something that I feel has helped is finding some form of a support group, some place where you could probably go and unload. And it might not be your peers because I have seen that in academia, it's very difficult to actually form a peer group and then unload your worries or even in conferences and places like that. The only thing that has probably helped me is finding mentors that are in line with your own interest. So that is one thing that's in your hand before you choose of career in academia and the other thing is that finding some form of a and having some form of a hobby to, to really express yourself. I think those are the three main things that are in the hands of any person who's choosing to get into a scientific career and I think those are the things that have helped me. Yeah, I would really stick to that and the bottom line is that it is a very challenging field and it is a very exhausting field. Even mentally, it is exhausting. Financially, it is exhausting. You name it and it's it's just exhausting to be in this field all the time because you're just constantly working or you're constantly thinking about what's your next chapter for your PhD or your mentor has given you a new idea that you want to work on. It is inherently challenging. I think the satisfying part about an academic life is seeing your paper published in some form and seeing that you are actually making progress. But I'm sure the frogs are definitely very thankful for all of your efforts. And <laughs> yeah, <yes>. uh, <laughs> any conservation output that you produce definitely has a really high real-world value, which we all really appreciate. 
So Amartya and I have both been following your Instagram for quite some while now. And uh, we wanted to ask you, um, how has the past 12 months, how has that affected your work? Yeah, I think the whole situation with pandemic and PhD students was something that we wouldn't have ever expected in our lives to deal with. For me, it was in the form of a lot of delays, even in receiving funds and then in field work. So forget about the funding part of it. That's really not in our hands. And we knew that globally there were issues. But things like field work became such trouble. It hit at the time when I was planning my next season of field work. And that didn't happen because the country went into sudden lockdown. And then we were also scared. We didn't want to risk our lives to go to the field and sample. Mostly where we are sampling is these remote areas. When you're living in a city, you don't want to go and sample in remote areas where you might be the carrier of the virus. So my fieldwork got cancelled altogether. And it affected me personally and professionally both. So now when I would have had a lot more data, I have very little data. And I was among the lucky people. I actually did sample the year before the pandemic hit. So when the lockdown was announced, I was in my field station and then the person where I stay, he's like, Madam, some virus is coming from China. You don't know about it or what? And I'm like, what, what virus is coming? I have no idea. <laughs> and, and then he's like, Madam, you should go home now. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. At the same time, my partner called and he's like, you need to really get back home. <laughs> you can't be in the field or you'll be stuck. So I caught a bus and I got back. And then once the situation got better in June and July, that's when we closed up in station. Till then I was paying the rent. I was, you know, doing everything, all the maintenance work. So it affected us in the form of delays and getting used to this new form of life. It's not going to be easy to travel anymore. It's not going to be easy for me to just hop on a bus and go to any remote area where I feel like sampling. And also I can't be in the field alone. I can't be sampling alone. So I need at least two or three people to sample. And three is the minimum we have had in the team. That was not happening. I couldn't recruit anybody. Nobody wanted to join the team because nobody wanted to travel. So that affected us. And throughout the monsoon, I was just confined at home. This is my sampling season and I'm sitting at home. And it also sort of affected personal plans. So it was very, very difficult to navigate through the pandemic. It's fine. I guess next year there's some hope. But yeah, these major delays are really not good for any PhD student. Fingers crossed that you're able to do your fieldwork very soon and also that you keep staying safe. Yeah. Existing projects also. We had to find newer ways to actually finish our projects because we have limited funds and stipend is going to stop at this day. So you need to finish your work before that day. Yeah, I think it was very difficult to navigate through this pandemic. I've seen online how difficult it is for postgraduate students to get extensions. Yeah, it's it's been pretty awful for many PhD students around the world. Yeah, totally. Um, one last question before we let you go. Your Instagram <laughs> yeah. name and your blog name is Girl Gone Birds. So yeah. I'm assuming you're a big bird enthusiast just like me and Sumit. <laughs> yes, it all started because of birds, actually. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us. I've learned things about frogs which I didn't know, and it was extremely interesting. And I've learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Best of luck with the rest of your PhD. We both wish you much success in your future research. Pleasure talking to you guys. Bye-bye. 
Wow, Sumit, I learned a bunch about frogs. But since I'm applying to PhD programs currently, talking to Madhushree really opened my eyes to what it's like to be a PhD student and also how important it is to manage your work and funding, but also keep time for your friends and hobbies to avoid drowning in stress. Yeah, I also feel frogs are an often overlooked part of our environment, and they play an important role in our ecosystem, one that I wasn't really sure of before. Madhushree's work with citizen science and awareness showed me how non-zoologists can contribute towards building a healthy environment, and I think her work is really important for establishing all the unique species that exist in our subcontinent that almost none of us know about. I agree. As you probably figured out from the show by now, you can find Madhushree's work and keep up with her on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and her blog at Girl Gone Birds. We put links to these in the show notes. Along with relevant references. Madhushree's work is about the dancing frogs, and you should watch the video in the show notes to see their dance. It's really fascinating and quite funny. With that, we'll let you go. See you next time.